Hey, true crime lovers, welcome back to Dark and Depraved. My name is Samara Weathers, your host and fellow crime junkie. I'm so sorry that there's been quite a bit of time between episodes. I've been preparing to move, so I haven't had a lot of time for research, but um, hopefully once I'm settled into my new place, I'll be able to get an episode out every two weeks, so bear with me just for a little bit longer. If you're not already following the Instagram for the podcast, go check it out, and in the podcast notes, um, I will put the link because I post pictures that go along with each case, so if you like seeing a visual aid as you're listening, go check that out because I don't know about you guys, but I like having an idea of what I'm hearing about. As usual, please send any requests or comments to the podcast email, which is also located in the podcast notes. I would like to give a warning. There are some graphic descriptions in this episode, but you are listening to a crime podcast, so what do you expect? (laughs) All right, let's get started, shall we? Today, we're going to be talking about Harvey Glattman. He is an American serial killer who operated in Los Angeles, California in the late 1950s. I feel like if people have heard about Glattman, it's usually in reference to Dennis Rader or BTK, as he is more commonly referred to. BTK, which stands for Bind, Torture, Kill, is also an American serial killer who claimed 10 lives. He's most well known for being an ordinary man with a family and a good job. He also taunted the police, taking a 25-year break from committing murders before resuming contact with the police and getting caught in 2003. He named Harvey Glattman as a sort of idol for him because Glattman also used bondage on his victims. Another similarity between BTK and Glattman was their use of photography in their crimes. Might end up covering BTK in a separate episode or episodes depending on how much detail I want to go into in that case, Um, but we'll see how that goes. Harvey Glattman was born in the Bronx in New York City on October 10th, 1927, to parents Albert and Ophelia Glattman. After Harvey was born, but before 1930, they relocated to Denver, Colorado, where Ophelia had extended family. The Glattmans only stayed briefly in Denver before moving back to New York. A few years later, they moved back to Denver in 1937 to live with Ophelia's sister, Rosalie Gold. From 1937 to 1944, the Glattmans lived in Denver, with Harvey attending Denver East High School, where he was in the top 7th percent of his class and played in the school band. Now, this guy, he was really, really smart. No one's going to deny that. But, you know, your smartness kind of gets negated when you decide to kill people, so it's not as uh, impressive anymore. Everything was not as it seemed with the small Glattman family, From a young age, Harvey exhibited interest in bondage. At the age of just four years old, Gladman would tie a string around his penis and then stick it the other end of the string into a drawer, leaning backwards until the string pulled taut. At age 11, he created rope systems in his attic where he would put a noose around his neck and throw it over a rafter, and right before losing consciousness, would climax. His parents did find out about this behavior, and when they contacted doctors, they received the response that it was simply a phase and that Harvey would grow out of it. But it's simple to say that Harvey did not, in fact, grow out of this phase. In between this incident and Glattman's senior year of high school, he began breaking into the houses in his neighborhood, stealing mostly small items. On one occasion, however, he did steal a gun. The houses he burgled were random at first, but at some point the thrill wasn't enough for him, and at this point he decided to target the homes of women he found attractive. In 1945, Glattman's senior year of high school, he moved on from practicing bondage on himself to trying it on other people. However, instead of finding a willing participant, he did it by force on the unsuspecting women of Denver. 
There isn't a lot of information about the women he assaulted in the beginning because they were left alive, but Glattman would isolate these women and then bind and gag them before molesting and robbing them. And since he's in his senior year of high school, this is a very early onset of violent behavior. On May 4th, 1945, Glattman bound, gagged, molested, and robbed Eula Joe Hand and two other women in the neighborhood of Capitol Hill in Denver. But this time, he was caught and arrested, and he was booked on May 18th after confessing to the robbery. Glattman consequently did not graduate high school, and on May 21st, his mother, Ophelia, paid his $2,000 bail. Because he was just her baby boy, of course he didn't do anything wrong. Less than two months later, on July 15, 1945, while out on bond from jail, Glattman bound, gagged, molested, and robbed yet another woman in Denver. This crime was a little different from the others, however, because this time Glattman kidnapped the woman and took her to Sunshine Canyon, where he assaulted her. He then returned her home after he was finished. Now, Noreen Lauer, the woman that Glattman assaulted, did press charges and identified Glattman out of a lineup, and two days later, he was arrested again and transported to the Boulder County Jail. Just six days later, on July 23rd, a bondsman paid Glattman's $5,000 bail, but eight days after that, Glattman was sent to the Colorado Psychopathic Hospital for evaluation, where after evaluation, he remained there until September 8th. When I read that, I was a little surprised because I didn't realize that back in the 50s, 40s, whatever, they used to call psychiatric hospitals psychopathic hospitals, so I thought that was kind of interesting. Okay, so Glattman stayed at the Colorado Psychopathic Hospital for a little over a month where he received psychopathic treatment. And yes, that is what they called it. On September 27th, 1945, there are a series of assaults in Denver's Park Hill neighborhood. All of the victims described what their attacker had done, and the Denver police knew that the MO matched Harvey Glattman, so on September 30th, he was arrested yet again. And on this, at this point, he's still out on bail from two different jails. Maybe you shouldn't let him have bail. Just a thought. Glattman spent eight days in jail and then was ordered by the court to spend a period of time, quote, not exceeding 10 days back in the Colorado Psychopathic Hospital. On November 4th, 1945, Glattman's charge for the Park Hill assaults was dismissed. I don't know why. I tried finding out why, but I couldn't find a reason. And it kind of pissed me off because after all he's done, you're just going to dismiss those charges? Like, come on. About two weeks later, on November 19th, about two weeks later, on November 19th, Glattman pled guilty to the Eula Joe Hand case, and his only defense witness, Dr. Hilton from the Colorado Psychopathic Hospital, recommended to the court that Glattman receive insulin shock treatments. Now, I took some time to research why he would recommend that, and it turns out that back in the 40s, insulin shock treatments were used in an effort to treat schizophrenia and other psychotic conditions, And how it works is the patient is given large amounts of insulin, which pretty much puts them in a coma for about an hour or so, and then they're slowly brought out of it. I'm not sure how this is supposed to help schizophrenia, but that's the method that they used. On December 1st, 1945, Glattman was sentenced to one to five years for the Eula Joe Hand case, which was to be served at the Colorado State Penitentiary. He only served eight months of his sentence before being released on parole on July 27th, 1946. Glattman and his mother went to New York, where he was released on parole, and from July 27th to August 25th, Glattman committed even more assaults and robberies on women until he was arrested in Albany, New York. 
While in New York, Gladman could not control his urges. The first assault was against Thomas Starrow and Doris Thorne. They had been walking together when Gladman approached them with a cap gun. Know that people might not know what a cap gun is. Pretty much it's a toy gun that has little tiny circles of kind of the stuff that poppets are made out of. So it kind of sounds like a gun, but it can't do any damage. So the couple did not realize that the gun was fake and they cooperated with Glattman. Glattman tied Thomas up and then began to rape Doris while aiming the fake gun at her. While Glattman was distracted, Thomas managed to untie himself and launch himself at Glattman. Unfortunately, Glottman was able to get out of Thomas's grip and slash him with a small knife he was carrying. Wounded, Thomas backed off and Glottman was able to get away. A few days later, a nurse named Florence Hayden was walking home when Glottman approached her and pushed her into a yard while pointing the toy gun at her. As he began tying her up with the rope he had in his pocket, she realized he had left the gun on the ground and began to scream and push him away. She escaped unharmed, telling the police that Glottman looked more scared than she felt. The next day, Glattman, left unsatisfied by the failed attack on Florence Hayden, decided to go out yet again. He saw two women, Evelyn Burge and Beverly Goldstein, and decided that they were his next victims. However, as he approached, he lost confidence and instead waved the toy gun at them and demanded for them to give him their money. They handed over their purses and Glattman left, still unsatisfied. It was two days later that Glattman was arrested and he was on his way to get his next victim when he was picked up by the police, who found the rope, cap gun, and pocket knife in Gladman's possession. He immediately confessed to all the assaults. Now keep in mind that Gladman is still out on bail for the Noreen Lauer case, and the case at this point is sort of waiting to be resolved in court because Gladman is in jail in New York. In 1948, Glattman is transferred to Sing Sing Prison in New York, where psychiatrists there examined him and said that he was not definitely mental defective or psychotic, but that he had, quote, sexually perverted impulses as the basis for his criminality. In 1950, the police in Denver actually dropped the Noreen Lauer case so that Glattman can be paroled in New York. And on April 16th, 1951, Glattman is re-arrested for the Noreen Lauer case, and of the three charges, two are dropped and one is suspended. On May 2nd, 1951, Glattman returns to Denver, and in order to stay on parole, he's ordered to stay in the care of Dr. Franklin G. Ebaugh, a psychiatrist. In 1952 and 1953, two big changes happen in Glattman's life. His father, Albert, passes away in 1952, and in 1953, his psychiatrist, Dr. Ebaugh, retires. Now, the reason I brought those things up is because most often in a serial killer's life, the when they start killing or when they escalate from more petty crimes, I don't want to say that rape and assault is a petty crime, but a crime that's not murder to murder, there's usually what's called a trigger, and that is a big life change that happens and that prompts them to kind of almost break mentally and that's when they kind of move on to murder. And so I personally think that this was Glattman's trigger because in April of 1954, the unidentified body of a woman is found outside of Boulder, Colorado. Now, the police are unable to solve this murder, but we'll find out later that it is attributed to Glattman. Glattman makes the move from Denver to Los Angeles, California in 1957. He is now 30 years old. He decides to take up his hobby of photography and is able to rent a studio apartment on Melrose Avenue and sets up a dark room and buys a camera. He uses the pseudonym Johnny Glenn, as well as many others, and starts offering his services, contacting modeling 
agencies looking for victims. But by now, Glattman isn't content with just assaulting his victims. Now he wants to kill them. Glattman's first murder victim was 19-year-old Judith Judy Dole. Judy was in the middle of a custody battle for her daughter and took up modeling as a way to pay the bills and was taking every job she could find. It was this ambition to get her daughter back that led her to take a job from Johnny Glenn or Harvey Glattman. Johnny Glenn, as he was going by, told Judith that he would pay her $50 for a short shoot, which is about $450 today. He even told her that they could shoot at her apartment she shared with two other models if it made her more comfortable. When he arrived at her apartment, he told her the lighting wasn't what he had in mind. And looking at Glattman's scrawny and awkward demeanor, Judith was not intimidated and agreed to go with Glattman back to his studio. Glattman gave his phone number to Judy's roommate and led her out to his car and then drove to his studio. Once they arrived, Glattman told Judy that the shoot required bondage and that he would need to tie her up. Just a quick side note, as I was researching this case, and also when I was learning about BTK, both of them had in their possession detective magazines that featured a lot of pictures of women like tied up in bondage. And I thought that was kind of interesting because I'm not really sure why a detective's publication would really go through the trouble of taking pictures like that and posting them in a magazine. I mean, like, I get it, police should be informed, but that, I mean, they were like in bikinis, so I don't, I don't really see how that would help anyone, but, you know, that's just my two cents, so. Once he had her tied up, he took out the real gun this time and started waving it around, telling her to look scared. Once he had enough pictures, he raped her multiple times and then forced her to sit on the couch with him and watch TV. At about 10.30 p.m., he tells Judy that he's going to let her go, but in order to do that, he has to drop her off in the middle of nowhere. He restrained her by tying her wrists together and then led her to the car at gunpoint. He then drove 100 miles southeast toward Thousand Palms, California. Once he found a spot that he liked, he pulled over and got her out of the car. He put a lasso around her neck, hog-tied her, and then strangled her with the rope. Now, at this point, it's late. Judy's roommates are getting worried because she's not home. It was supposed to be just a short shoot. And at this point, it's probably around 11, 12. So they call the number that Glattman left behind. But when they realize that it isn't the studio's number, they call the police. Betty, the roommate that Glattman gave the number to, describes Glattman to the cops and they put out a bulletin. But no one comes forward with any tips. Four miles from Indio, California, a body is found in a shallow grave just off the highway. But due to how far Glattman had dumped her from Los Angeles, she was labeled as a Jane Doe and remained that way for many months. On March 9th, 1958, Glattman found his second murder victim. She was 24-year-old Shirley Bridgeford, a divorced mother of two who met Glattman through a newspaper column called The Lonely Hearts Club, which is also where he got his name, The Lonely Hearts Killer. Now, The Lonely Hearts Club was... For people seeking love, they could put out adverts in the newspaper to find companionship. Glattman used the alias George Williams, and after contacting Shirley, he met her at her house on Tuxford Street in Sun Valley, California. When he arrived at Shirley's home, he was kind of caught off guard by the amount of people there, so he used the guise of going dancing with her to get her out of the house and alone. Once they were in the car, he told her he had a headache and then told her that they should go to dinner in Oceanside instead of dancing. Shirley and Glattman had dinner, and when they were done, 
They went back to his car where they made out and fooled around for a little bit. When they were done, Glattman started to drive her home, but instead of heading north to Los Angeles, he headed east. When he pulled up to Anza Borrego Desert State Park, Glattman's demeanor changed. He pointed a gun at Shirley and told her to undress. He then proceeded to rape her in the car multiple times and then got her out of the car to tie her up on the desert floor. He took pictures of her tied up, but when his flashbulb broke, he waited until sunrise so that he could have enough light to take even more pictures of her. So this poor girl is just tied up for probably around, I don't know, five, six hours with this dude who just raped her just in the middle of the desert. How terrifying. That's awful. Once he got all the pictures that his sick little heart desired, he strangled her. And once she was dead, he repositioned her lifeless body and took even more pictures. When he was done, he left her body on the ground, exposed to the elements, and left. It's now July 24th, 1958, and Ruth Mercado has no idea that her life is about to end. Ruth had been working jobs as a pinup girl and dancer under the alias of Angela Rojas after moving to Los Angeles from New York. She had placed an ad in the paper looking for modeling jobs to make some side money. Glattman contacted her after seeing her ad in the paper, and they made arrangements for him to go to her apartment to do the photo shoot. Glattman then abducted Ruth and took her to the same place he took Shirley Bridgeford, the Anza Borrego Desert State Park. He put her through the same torture before strangling her and leaving her body there. It would later be found not far from Shirley Bridgeford's body. Three days after Ruth was killed, her landlord became concerned because he hadn't seen her since the 24th. He used his master key to access her apartment and found all of her pets, a dog and some birds, all on the verge of death from starvation. At this point, he knew something was wrong and contacted the police, telling them that she had left for a photo shoot with a photographer and never returned. It is now, two months later, on October 27, 1958, that Glattman makes a mistake that would ultimately lead to his arrest. Lorraine Vigil, an amateur model, had booked her first paid gig with a photographer. Little did she know it would be the last photo shoot she ever did. Glattman, or Frank Johnson, which was the alias he had used this time, contacted Lorraine's agency to set up a shoot. They agreed and told Lorraine that Frank Johnson would be picking her up at her apartment at 8 o'clock that night to go to his studio for the shoot. When Glattman picked her up, they started heading in the direction of Anaheim, but when they passed the exit, Lorraine became confused and started asking questions about where they were going. Glattman, annoyed at her inquisitions, veered off to the shoulder of the freeway, claiming he had a flat tire. Once the car was stopped, he attempted to tie Lorraine up with the rope he had brought with him, but she resisted. Glattman reached to pull out his gun, but instead of shying away, Lorraine actually grabbed the barrel and started wrestling Glattman for it. What a boss. I, I love that. They continued to struggle until the pistol went off, firing a bullet that grazed Lorraine's leg. Glattman released the gun in surprise, and that split second allowed Lorraine to get out of the car and run away with the gun. Now, fortunately, Glattman's erratic driving had caught the eye of a police officer on the freeway who had turned around and was now heading towards them. Lorraine drops the gun and runs toward the police, crying for help, while Glattman just cowers down in his car. When the police heard Lorraine's story, they promptly arrested Glattman and took him to the Orange County Jail, where he was questioned. Glattman confessed to the murders and to the assault and the attempted murder of Lorraine Vigil. The police were sent to Glattman's home, where they found a toolbox full of all the photographs he had taken of his victims. The photos were all in excellent condition because Glattman always handled them with care. He used the pictures as trophies of his kills, allowing him to relive the attacks. 
His whole MO was making these women unable to fight back with the bondage because he was a coward. And so tying them up with the rope and taking pictures allowed him to be in control long after they were dead. The police also found articles of clothing from his victims at his studio. Now, I just want to interject something here. I think that this all could have been prevented. I don't say all of it, but at least the murders. If the police, the multiple times he had been arrested for the same pattern of behavior in his youth, had realized that there was a pattern and had not allowed him bail, actually made him serve his full sentence, that maybe things could have been avoided. Because I guarantee the longer he would have stayed in prison, the more people would have been like, yeah, that's one sick dude. He probably shouldn't get out. So I do think that if the police had used a little bit more critical thinking (laughs) and looked at the pattern and said, hmm, this guy can't even wait till he's off of bail to commit more crimes, that maybe these murders could have been avoided. Now, although Glattman confessed, the police wanted to wait to charge him officially until they could find the remains of all of his victims. This would not only help them build a strong case for court with forensic evidence, but also to bring closure to the victims' families. The police took Glattman out to Anza Borrego Desert State Park so that he could show them where the victims were. Shirley Bridgeford's body was scattered across the desert because of animal interference, but there were still enough remains to identify her. Ruth Mercado's body was much more well-preserved. Her skull was actually intact, and there was actually still hair on it. Now, when Glattman tried to show them the body of Judy Dull, he was confused because her body was no longer there. That's because the Indio police had already found it sometime before and labeled her as a Jane Doe. On December 15, 1958, Glattman pleaded guilty by reason of insanity and was sentenced to death for the murders of Shirley Bridgeford and Ruth Mercado. I'm not sure why he wasn't sentenced for the murder of Judy Dole, but my best guess is that because the Indio police found her, that case was their their jurisdiction. And if they attempted to extradite him, that would prolong the court case. And seeing as he was sentenced to death, there was almost no point because you can't die twice. So after he was sentenced to death, he was transported to San Quentin Prison, where he remained on death row until roughly nine months later on September 18, 1959, when he was executed via gas chamber. He was 31 years old. I never knew that gas chamber was an option for execution, but you learn something new every day. Also, I feel like nine months on death row is very short, because I always hear of people being on death row for years, so... I guess not many people must have been on death row at that point. Harvey Glattman became the first serial killer to be profiled by the FBI. One of the detectives assigned to this case also pioneered, in a way, the analysis of suspects when at a crime scene. He started looking for what nowadays we call a signature or a calling card left behind by the killer. This would later develop into the system known as VICAP, which allows law enforcement from all across the U.S. to enter data and possibly connect crimes that otherwise would not have been connected because of jurisdictional disputes. So it's pretty cool seeing how this case kind of changed the way law enforcement handled multiple murders committed by the same person, because in the 50s, serial killers were not really on anyone's radar in the U.S., and the term serial murder wasn't even coined for another nine years. But as we all know, they are very common nowadays. Glattman's childhood behavior played into the research that went on to be known as the homicidal triad as well. 
The homicidal triad is considered to be one of the warning signs of budding psychopaths. It traditionally involves arson, bedwetting, and the abuse of small animals, whether they are pets or wild. Harvey Glattman did display two of these factors in early childhood, as well as antisocial behavior and voyeurism. The term sadomasochism was coined by Sigmund Freud in 1905, which describes someone that gives or receives pleasure from acts involving the receipt or infliction of pain or humiliation. You may be wondering, why are you giving us the definition of sadomasochism? Well, (laughs) Harvey Glattman practiced sadomasochism in his life and in his murders. As we talked about earlier, Glattman from a very young age would masturbate by inflicting pain on himself, and in his murders, he was more sadistic, inflicting pain on his victims for sexual pleasure. And the only reason I'm really bringing this up is just to give you a deeper look into who Harvey Glattman really was. He was a coward who believed women existed solely to fulfill his sexual needs, and I'll say it, I'm glad he's dead. I'm kind of playing around with offering kind of a more psychological examination of these killers. I don't know if you guys are really into that, so be sure to like leave me feedback and say if you want me to continue doing this with all the rest of my cases, because I know I find it very interesting, and I'm sure maybe a couple of you also do, so just let me know via the Instagram or the email if you like that and if I should keep doing it for all the future cases I cover. And that's really all I have for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed learning about one of the first documented serial murder cases in the United States and how it shaped the way law enforcement handled those cases from then on. As usual, any questions you feel I didn't answer or simply want to request a certain case or talk to me about the case I just covered, you can reach me at the podcast email or Instagram, which are both linked in the podcast notes. And if you're feeling extra generous, you can sponsor me at buymeacoffee.com slash depraved because... It is a little expensive running a podcast, I'll tell you that. So anything helps. Um, Obviously, only if you're so inclined, but the offer's out there. And thank you so much for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode of Dark and Depraved. Hope you guys all have a great night, and that you keep listening. Bye!